Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I'm the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Appreciate you being here, giving us a download, a view, a listen, wherever it is that you are. As always, appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. Question this week, does it really matter where we get our fat from? Is there a difference between the fat that's found in an avocado versus the fat that's found in a hamburger? What about the fat that's found in nuts versus the fat, say, in a fried bologna sandwich? In short, what we're going to find out on today's show is whether there is such a thing as a healthy source of fat. You know, eating too much fat is something that millions of us struggle with, and it's so easy to do because those unhealthy, fat-heavy foods are literally everywhere. They're in grocery stores, vending machines. They're in your office, in your pantry, in your car. They're on TV. They're at the drive-thru. We can't turn anywhere without seeing some sort of a high-fat food. So are some of those foods better than others? We're going to find out as I sit down with Dr. Hanna Kaliova, who recently conducted a study that examines the quality of fat versus the quantity of fat. What's the balance there? Is there even a balance? Her research actually shed a lot of light on this. You're going to want to hear it. And then I'm going to speak with Dr. Steve Niebuhr. We're going to role play a little bit. I think back and I often replay my many, many, many visits to the doctor's office when I was still obese. As a 420-pound man, I was in there always, and these visits are in my head to this day. I replay them. Why didn't I listen to what the doctor was telling me? And why didn't I ask the questions that I was scared to ask? And here we are nearly 10 years later, and I'm finally going to get the chance to ask those questions. Dr. Niebuhr is going to examine me as if I still were that weight. I really wish that I wasn't so defensive back then. I remember leaving the doctor's office just infuriated by the fact that they told me to lose weight or I would die. I was enraged that they put me on blood pressure medication when I was still in high school. Who were they? A lot of that anger can be chalked up to a severe food addiction. That's what I think. Talk about it a lot on this show. I just wasn't ready to put down the Taco Bell at that point. I wasn't ready to hear what they had to say. But today, I am. So as my 420-pound self, I'm finally going to get the answers that I wish I had when I was still wearing a 66-inch pair of jeans and a size 6XL shirt. Today, it's going to be different. And then we're going to turn the page, and we're going to take a look at gut bacteria. It is one of the most popular topics on the show. Dr. Lee Frame is going to join me via Skype. And you may not know the name, but she is an expert in the area of gut microbiome and has some very interesting insight on where the study of said microbiome is going. These studies being done now are really, I mean, they're just straight up futuristic, and they offer a lot of promise for the future of all of our health. You know, We're finding that the link between microbiome and overall health is so much greater than we previously thought. 
And I think that you are going to be fascinated to know that everything that we eat and we drink, it plays a role in how that gut bacteria is formed. And did you know, here's a fun fact, did you know that microbiome profiles are like fingerprints or like DNA? No one person has exactly the same profile. We are all unique. And as you'll hear, it's both fascinating, but kind of frustrating. Because with all of us being unique, it makes it very hard to define what is good gut bacteria and what is bad gut bacteria. A very interesting discussion indeed. But we're going to start with Dr. Kali Ova and her remarkable research. Join us now as we examine the quantity versus the quality of fat. Very interesting show we're doing here today on the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. We are talking about not just quantities of fat, but the quality of fat. Is there such a thing as a healthy fat? To answer that, we have the Physicians Committee's Director of Clinical Research sitting across the table from me, Dr. Hanna Kaliova. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. The study that you put out, it examines fat quantity and quality in terms of insulin resistance and secretion. The first thing is, I want to ask you about that headline. When you say quality of fat, what is it that you're talking about? Um, so if when we're talking about fat quality, we're talking about which fats we're using. Obviously, it's a dif- it's a different there's a difference between using butter and between using olive oil or avocado or oil or nuts hmm. um, in terms of composition of the fat. Uh, you know, there are different fatty acids. Um, the saturated fat uh, increases your cholesterol and increases your cardiovascular risk. Um, and most, uh, for the most part, saturated fat is in animal, animal products like meat and dairy and eggs. However, uh, there's some saturated fat also in coconut oil, uh, in palm oil um, that are being still used um, in some sweets, some processed foods like chips, um, you know, so uh, there are different kinds of fat that we can be using. Right. Uh, and the saturated fat, even if it's from uh, plant sources, will still raise your cholesterol. So you want to... Um, decrease and possibly eliminate the amounts of saturated fat in your diet. And you want to increase the good fats, the monounsaturated fats, the like found, for example, in olive oil or in uh, nuts, right. um, in almonds, uh, in pecans, in cashews, uh, and polyunsaturated fats. Um, so, uh, you know, the quality of fat uh, is very important. What we found in our study uh, is just just switching to a vegan diet um, increased the quality of fat people were consuming. Right. We advised them on avoiding um, tropical oils like coconut oil or palm oil right. and all the processed foods that contain them. Right. And we told them, um, we instructed them to keep their fat content in the diet fairly low. And uh, be careful. You know, some people think, well, you know, this is olive oil. This is the healthy fat. So I will just dump it in my salad. Mm -hmm. However, they don't realize that it's not only about fat quality. 
it's also about fat quantity. Right, and that's what I was going to ask you. It's like, are we talking about going hog wild and eating that whole jar of nuts or using the whole uh, uh, bottle of, of olive oil? Because, I, you know, whether it's a healthy fat or a, a unhealthy fat, I just, I, I can't see just having unlimited amounts of fat in the diet. To me, that just doesn't seem to be the healthiest option. Exactly, that's correct. Uh, so... The first step is to pay attention to the quality of fat we're consuming. Right. But the second step is to be mindful of the quantity of fat we're using, of the amounts. Right. Um, because fat is still fat. Right. If we're struggling with body weight and need to lose some weight and improve our metabolism, then we need to be careful and limit the amounts of fat that we're using. Obviously, um, fat is the... Um, source of energy as a reserve. Right. Uh, so it's high in energy. Mm -hmm. One gram of fat contains nine uh, calories right. compared with carbohydrates and proteins that contain only four yeah, calories. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in, so, in a little bit, yeah. So there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. We need to be mindful of, um, you know, the concentration of calories in, in fat. Uh, that's why we're limiting um, the fat intake in our diet to in order to reach the balance. Right. We want the healthy fats, but only in small amounts. Right. Like so, one handful of nuts a day is plenty. Right. You know that will supply you with all the fats that you need. And even if you exclude oils and nuts completely from your diet, if there are some days where you're not consuming any uh, like added oils or any added fats, mm -hmm. you don't need to worry about that. Right. You know, you will still be getting enough. Right. Okay. So let let me then ask you, so you say one handful of nuts. Can we put a number on that? Like how many grams of fat somebody should be eating a day maximum? So that would be one ounce of nuts. Um, that would be like an upper limit right. for, for the day. So in terms of grams of fat, you know, if somebody turned and looked at the nutrition label mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, well, this has 12 grams of fat. How many grams should they be eating? So uh, in one day, you shouldn't be eating more than 20 to 30 grams of fat per day. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and I, I, can, I can hear somebody then asking themselves in their question. Maybe they're just trying to scheme a way to like keep chips in their diet. And they're saying, okay, well, what if then I got sweet potato chips that were fried in olive oil as opposed to canola oil or corn oil or something like that. Would those be the healthier option? What would you say to that person? Um, well, these are still processed foods. So, you know, you need to be careful about those. Excluding them completely is better for you. Uh, you know, looking for other options that are, um, you know, satiating palatable, um, but also healthy, right. uh, is a better option. So avoiding fried foods, uh, avoiding chips completely. No matter what oil is, is exactly. being used. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, so this study that just came out recently uh, that we've mentioned here, uh, fat quantity and quality is part of a low-fat vegan diet, um, talking about body composition and insulin resist, uh, resistance. What exactly was it that you were looking for in this study? 
So in this study, uh, we put people on a low-fat vegan diet for 16 weeks. Mm -hmm. And we were not only tracking their body weight changes, but we were also looking at their body composition, okay. how much muscle, how much fat they were losing. Oh. We were uh, looking at how much visceral fat they were losing. That's around the abdomen, right? Exactly. That's uh, around your inner organs, in around your stomach, around your liver and other organs um, in your abdomen. Okay. And uh, this is the most metabolically dangerous fat. So the less of it you have, the better off you are. Is that why uh, we see studies the where they, they say that if you have uh, what's referred to as a beer belly, you're, you're at yes. an increased risk for heart failure or something like that? That's it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, right right there in the uh, abstract at the top of the study, I feel like I, I'm getting educated the more I do the show, like I can actually read these things <laughs> and semi-understand what's in there. Um, I want to ask you about the different kinds of uh, acids that – you mentioned because you you reference specific plasma fatty acids what are plasma fatty acids uh, that's correct. Uh, so we can analyze your blood or any sample from your body. Let's say we can take a sample from your adipose tissue uh, or from your muscle, and we can just analyze the composition um, of the cell membranes mm -hmm. because the fat that you're eating becomes an integral part of your body, right. of all your cells in your body. So uh, we can take a sample from your blood or from your muscle or from your um, um, adipose post-tissue, and we can just analyze the composition of the cell membranes. And uh, now the cool part, uh, I can... Bring the science. Bring it. I can tell from this small sample, mm -hmm. I can tell what you've been eating for the past um, couple of weeks. Uh, you know, this uh, composition in the cell membranes reflects your diet for the last about four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. So I can tell, you know, there was some, there was a steak, you know, there oh was goodness. some cheese. Oh my goodness. Four <laughs> or to six I can, weeks? Or I can tell, oh, this person is eating only olive oil. They're just running on olive oil. Right. <laughs> or, you know. That's crazy. I mean, that's like a drug test. I, you know, yeah. it's like, a, you know, Fill this cup with pee, you know, we'll see if you've been, what drugs you've been doing. But you're saying, like, I can look at fat yeah. and say what foods you've been eating. That exactly. is amazing to me. Yeah. That yeah. is amazing cool. to me. Uh, what about, uh, is it linoleic acids? Linoleic. Yeah. Uh, linoleic. Linoleic. And, okay. And linolenic. Linoleic. So there are two fatty acids, linoleic acid and linolenic acid. Well, let's cover them both uh, then, Dr. Kali. Both of them are polyunsaturated fatty acids, okay. and both of them are good for you. Okay. Uh, and uh, the more of them you're consuming percentage-wise, the better for your metabolic health. Right. The challenge with most people is that they eat so much fat of low quality mm -hmm. uh, that, you know... Percentage-wise, they're getting very little of these two uh, beneficial fatty acids. Right, right. So if we just decrease the amount of total fat um, that we're eating and if we concentrate on the quality and, you know, choose carefully – we will automatically increase these beneficial fatty acids in our diet. Gotcha. You know, it's amazing, but these fatty acids are, for example, found in some herbs and some uh, green leafy vegetables. Really? Yeah. So the thing is, there's not a lot in terms of 
quantity mm-hmm. in green leafy vegetables and in herbs. However, you know, we're getting an amazing amount percentage-wise of these beneficial fatty acids. Fascinating. Who knew? Yeah. I, I didn't even know that there was uh, fat stored in, mm-hmm. in, in things like herbs. You would think that that's kind of a fat-free food, you know? Right. There's uh, very little, but the fat that's in there is very beneficial. Just a trace, yeah. huh? Just a trace. So yeah. uh, what did you guys find with this with this study here? What were the results? So the results were um, the less fat people were eating on a plant-based diet, the more weight they were losing and the better their body composition. They were losing more fat and more visceral fat. Okay. And the the better their metabolic health. They were increasing their insulin sensitivity and also their beta, beta cells uh, were kind of revived and they were able to produce more insulin, uh, which was very cool. Yeah. And uh, also we were able to break it down to the fat quality and, uh, you know, the less saturated fat and trans fats they were uh, eating and the more of these beneficial polyunsaturated linoleic and linolenic acids they were eating, the better for their metabolic health as well. Now, uh, when you said beta cells, I'm sure some people are wondering, what is a beta cell? Oh, beta cells are in our pancreas, and they are producing insulin. Mm. Uh, and um, you know, when when we as we age, uh, the beta cells are on high demand to produce insulin. So we need to be protective. Ah. We need to take care of them. We need to give them the right foods uh, to give them the right re- nutrition, uh, so that they can keep going. So then that brings me to the question of in this study, you know, what was the age range of the study participants? Were they middle-aged? Were they older? Were they younger? Who were you looking at here? Uh, These people were around in their 50s and 60s. Okay. Okay. Middle age, maybe a little more. I'm still got the the promising uh, results here. I'm curious, though. um, I believe I read that... Uh, the results here, or as far as their diet, it was self-reported, correct? That's correct, But yes. did you give them a specific menu to follow? Like, you need to eat this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and if you want a snack, have this. We gave them general instructions. So the first rule was uh, to go vegan, mm-hmm. eat only plant foods, no animal foods, no meat, no dairy, no eggs. Uh, so that's rule number one, right. only vegan foods. And the second rule, keep your fat content within 20 to 30 grams per day. Okay. And that's it. Two simpler rules. Interesting. So, I mean, that's that's got to be relatively easy to yeah. follow, all things considered. Uh, were people pretty receptive to this? I mean, were they generally happy with, I mean, this was 16, 16 weeks. I mean, that's what, three months, four months almost. So that's, that's, that's a good stretch there. They did yeah. okay? And, you know, they were super excited. Once they tried it for several several weeks, they were like, this is easy. I mean, I don't need to count calories. I don't need to count carbs. There you go. And I'm losing weight. I feel better than ever before. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Amazing. Not wanted to count carbs. That... Uh, actually brings me to another fine question. You know, I'd be remiss um, if I didn't ask you about uh, the keto diet, which, of course, is the polar opposite of what it is that we're talking about here. That's high fat and low carb. Uh, People do that for weight loss. Um, 
But you did a study, I think it was a plant-based diet, uh, looking at overweight individuals in a Mm 16-week randomized clinical trial. The role of carbohydrates in weight loss. This is hotly debated. I mean, some people say that carbs are the devil. Other people uh, say that carbs are the best thing since sliced bread, which, well, happens to be a carb. So, carbs, what did you find in your research? Uh, So when we're talking about carbs, again, there's quality and quantity. Ooh, I'm noticing a theme. So, uh, you know, we know the difference between candy and whole rye bread, Mm -hmm. right? Or brown rice and white rice. Right. Whole whole wheat pasta and white pasta. Uh, So, uh, of course, we want to choose, you know, a good quality of carbohydrates. Right. Uh, when we go to a fresh produce section, we don't even we, we're automatically getting the you know the best quality of carbohydrates. For sure. You know, if you get your fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains, you know, that's just the highest quality of carbohydrates that you can get. So your body treats the the various forms of carbs differently. Exactly. So, uh, what about calories? Because there was another study that you did, and we blogged about it on our website. And the headline on that blog really caught my eye. It said, "Not all calories mm-hmm. are stored equally." What did you mean by that headline? Exactly. So, uh, it's not only about quantity; it's also about quality. There we go. So again. we're breaking breaking down all the different macronutrients like fat, carbohydrates. We need to be careful about the quantity, but mm-hmm. also about the quality that we're putting in. Right. And and generally speaking, as you mentioned, I think plant-based diets by and large are naturally lower in fat by their very nature. And that's, that's why people really don't have to worry about counting calories as these study that's participants correct. found uh, or, or watching out for too much fat uh, just because all of that drops um, you know, kind of organically, um, if you will. Uh, have you followed up with these patients since the study? I know sometimes you, you build these amazing relationships with the study participants. I mean, we just had Starla Mauer on the show, and I know you two are still besties. Um, have you followed up w- with, with any of these people, and are they sticking with it? Oh, yes. Um, many of our study participants are still sticking to the diet. Good. And stay tuned. Uh, you know, another study participant might be might be coming to um, make a podcast with you soon. Ah, yes. I got an email about said study participant that uh, perhaps we will have uh, in, in the future. Yeah, I, I love a good success story. And the cool thing about the research that's being done at the Physicians Committee is it lends itself to the fact that there is no shortage of success stories. I mean, such such incredible stories. Um, I, I want to ask you a final question. Um, you do so much work with diabetes research, and, and you have such a, a wealth of knowledge. I had somebody close to me recently. I was telling them about the plant-based diet, and I was kind of suggesting it to them gently. Uh, I never want to come across as a preachy vegan and say, hey, you need to do this or else. It's so counterproductive. But he said, you know, Chuck, I would really want to do that, but I'm scared to because I'm diabetic. And I honestly had no idea how to even begin to respond to that. So what advice could you give me then to pass this on to my friend? Because I'm sure maybe a listener has had that very same experience. 
Yeah, many people are scared of eating carbohydrates if they're diabetic. However, the amazing fact is that a vegan diet is the most effective diet in reversing diabetes, not only making it a little bit better. You know, carb counting will make your diabetes a little bit better and mm. will enable you to manage it better. However, a vegan diet will, you know, be able to reverse your diabetes. Gotcha. So uh, why don't you just give it a try for three months, you know? The three-month trial. Co compare both diets against each other. Try before you buy, as I yep. always say. Uh, and, and I think that that's, the, that's good advice. So I will, I will tell him. Uh, I'll ask him uh, also if he wants to come in and, and be seen. Um, I think, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, a lot of people who are skeptical of a plant-based diet think that anybody who eats one is automatically a hippie that parades around in tie-dyed shirts and, you know, lights sage and <laughs> incense and has drum circles <laughs> and things of that nature, which is all wonderful. But that's not me. And so I'm looking at you and I'm, I'm not thinking that you're, you're banging that drum at the drum circle either. So, you know, that's, that's another stereotype that I think that, uh, that we need to tackle. Uh, if somebody is interested in participating in one of your studies, and by the way, I have had listeners email uh, after your appearances asking how they can get involved in the research. Uh, we do accept applications on the website, correct? Uh, that's correct. Right now, we can put you on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, once we start recruiting for another study, we will let you know. How, how many studies do you tend to do in a year on average? Would you say? So right now we're running three studies. Three. Okay. Yeah. And do you, do you expect that there will be new ones popping up at some point this year? Um, probably um, later this year we will be recruiting for a new study that, that will be coming up next year. Fantastic. That means more success stories. Uh, Dr. Hanna Kaliova, thank you so much for, uh, for lending your time. We're going to put a link up to this study on pcrm.org slash podcast so you can check it out for yourself. Looking at fat quantity versus quality. Very important. Very important distinction. Thanks, Chuck. We've posted a link to Dr. Kaliova's study on pcrm.org slash podcast, and I highly recommend that you check it out. You know, because there is always so much that we don't get to, and I think that it's important that we have as complete of a picture as possible, and reading the full study will definitely tell the whole tale. Next up in the exam room is Dr. Steve Niebuhr. He and I are going to be talking about food addiction. And that is, I believe, the driving force that got me all the way up to 420 pounds. We've chronicled my late night Taco Bell missions and how I would go through physical detox and psychological detox if I didn't get my fix. On previous shows, I've talked about putting my fist through a wall and through a door because I wasn't getting my Taco Bell. I was on a quote unquote diet. It was horrific, and it was something that I would not wish on my worst enemy. And it's important that we once again have a frank discussion, because just as nutrition is grossly overlooked in most medical school curriculums, so too, my friend, is food addiction. Then, as we continue to chew the fat, we're going to take a trip in the time machine back about 10 years when I was still woefully overweight. I was terrified at that point that I wasn't going to live to see my 30th birthday. But I felt I felt paralyzed in my massive frame. I was barely able to walk without my chest feeling like it was going to collapse. I could not get air and everything hurt. I take a couple of steps and stop. Take a couple more and stop. 
And at the rate I was going, the rate that that weight was just piling on, eventually I would have stopped permanently. And so as my former 420-pound self, I'm going to ask Dr. Niebuhr about what was really going on inside of me. And then the big question, the big question, how long did he think I would live if I continued eating that way? I wasn't ready to hear the answer back then, but now I know that I am. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Now sitting across the table from Dr. Steve Niebuhr from upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Thank you. Niebuhr. Thank you, sir. So let's talk about obesity, because that is kind of what we are discussing today yeah. based off of Dr. Kaliova's study. How much did you really study and learn about food addiction when you were in medical school? Oh, man. Uh, I would say approximately zero. <laughs> Same as fiber and meat. Right. Uh, no, I mean, we learn about addiction, but it, it usually is more focused on, on substance addiction. You gotcha. know, cigarettes and alcohol, drugs, that kind gotcha. of thing. Uh, food addiction, not as much. I can, I can tell you yeah. that the, uh, it was easier for me to quit smoking than it was for me to quit food. I mean, like I said, I had to have the bariatric surgery to break that food addiction. Right. You know, I'm not sure that I would have been able to do it without it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no patch for food, right? No. There's no gum. There's no, you know, pills. No. Well, there are you, pills. You'd be, I shouldn't you'd say be that. led to there believe. I, I, I would prefer, you know, not to go down the pill route. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, long term, you have to break that addiction. Right. And I, I would prefer, whether it's food or any other addiction, not to rely on one pill to fight another addiction like it, it that to me is just right right and then you're taking a pill for the rest of your life right. also right so has that you said that that food addiction has come up in conversation with your patients oh though, sure correct? yeah okay. absolutely okay a lot of desperation when they come in and see you it's tough i, I think people that openly admit to addiction and, and tell me that they have a problem Obviously, they're asking for help, mm -hmm. right? Um, but addiction is difficult no matter what it is. So whether it is alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, uh, it's it's tough to it's tough to beat that, you right. know. Um, and I'll I'll have this conversation with patients, and I'll say you're going to have relapses. Yes, In all likelihood you're going to have relapses. Yes. like you'll start you'll start today. You'll walk out of this office, and you'll you'll have some fruit. You'll have a good healthy dinner, and you know tomorrow maybe you'll wake up still doing well, but then. You know, it'll be a coworker's party during the day, or it'll be a, a family member's get together, and then there's ah, oh, there's that chocolate cake, or there's something, and you say, well, I'll just have a little bit, you know, and then you start going down that road again, where you say, well, I'm doing pretty well, but from time to time, I'm cheating a little bit, yep, and a little bit becomes more and more, yep, yep. and then you're uh, back where you started. That's that's what I call my one nacho theory, because yeah. I can trace back failed diets to every single time that I had that one slip up, in particular, the one that I remember most distinctly. I had one nacho okay. and that completely threw me off the rails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean it's like drinking. I mean, think of, you know, somebody who is trying to quit drinking. They they admit to being an alcoholic and they say I'm not going to drink again and then well, you have one drink and it's like, well, maybe I'll have another one and another one and then next thing you know, you know, you're blacking out. Yes sir. Right? So yes, not sir. a good thing. Same thing can happen with food. Yep. Um and the same center in your brain that's triggered with alcohol addiction or, or, or tobacco addiction is triggered with food addiction. Oh, yeah, man. The brain lights up like a Christmas tree. It's oh, yeah. unbelievable. Oh, when yeah. I was getting my Taco Bell fixed, man, it was like a state of euphoria inside my dome. Yeah, I mean, anything that makes you feel good, you're going to want more of, right? Yep, yep. I mean, it, I mean, it went beyond feeling good at that point. It was like I had to have it for so many reasons. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was that was crazy addiction. Um, 
real quick here, generally speaking, would you say that your overweight patients you see more frequently than non-obese patients? Um, Speaking yeah, in generalities. In very general terms, I would say yes, okay. um, because I think if if you follow up more with people, you kind of stay more on top of them, right? So right. If, if you're coming in and you're saying, I'm trying to like improve my diet, I'm trying to eat better, I'm trying to maybe exercise a little bit more. If I say, okay, great, come back in six months, it doesn't really work that great. Because right. if you leave and you have those relapses and, and you got nobody to talk to about it, it, it things aren't going to work really well. Right. But if, you, but if I say follow up with me in a week, then you're going to say, well, I, you know, I'm going to try my hardest and I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really try to, to see that difference in the scale when I come back. Not that somebody else isn't going to try their hardest, but it's better when you have that, that added pressure of having to come back in a week or two. Well, I, I ask you that because of, again, my own experience, and that is where I'm basing 100% of this conversation okay. off of. Uh, when I was super morbidly obese, the file at my doctor's office, I yeah. mean, it was like an encyclopedia thick, like war and peace thick. I mean, it was unbelievable. Okay. And I stopped seeing that doctor when I was probably in my early 20, mid to, yeah, with, with regularity, it was early 20s. Last time I saw, saw her was like mid 20s. But I, I mean, the file before I even got out of high school was super, super thick. Yeah. And I would come in with every different ailment known to man. Right. Um, and it, it kind of became a joke where I was like, can I check off every little ailment that they have on that sheet for diagnosis? Like, what can I get this time? Yeah. And it, it's Nine times out of ten, it was sinusitis or strep throat or something yeah. like that. It's terrible for a guy in your 20s. I mean, for anybody, even if you were 80 years old. That's that's not good. Yeah, I mean, it was knock me out on my butt for a week kind of sinusitis. Um, so – I was just asking that um, because I wanted to do some role play with you. All right. Uh, I want to go back in time uh, because I think it'll be really interesting to kind of revisit this now. Uh, I want to play my old 25-year-old self. All right. All 420 pounds. Oh, man. And you don't know me, but no. you, you are my doctor at this point. Okay. First visit. Let me present. Sure. 420 pounds. Okay. Gaining weight rapidly. Uh, when I was at my peak, I would estimate I was gaining probably 25 to 30 pounds a year. Wow. I mean, it was coming on. Yeah. Like, it was coming on in a hurry. Like, I was way out of control. Wow. Uh, blood pressure, roughly 190 over 110. We've talked about that on previous shows. Uh, was on beta blockers off mm. and on since high school. Uh, had a hard time breathing. Um, not so much when I was at rest, but certainly any time I took any sort of step and there was any sort of movement, mm -hmm. uh, it was only after a couple paces that my test would start, uh, my chest would start to tighten up really bad, mm -hmm. uh, and and then I just I, I couldn't breathe. Like it really felt. You always hear people talk about having an elephant sit on their chest. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of what was going on there. Um, I couldn't even you know walk from my car to the metro without having to stop three times. Wow. Uh, Likely, possibly pre-diabetic, never really had my blood sugar checked. I don't know why. Uh, high cholesterol falls into the same category. Yeah. Uh, I would say that that's a virtual certainty based off of my diet sure. at the time. Um, so that's me at 25, uh, already uh, in, in pretty rough shape. So my question to you is how much longer could I go like that? Wow. Well... You're still around, 
but you had some intervention, right? I had I had some major <laughs> intervention. So yes. if you had done nothing differently, correct, and continued the way you were going, correct. I mean, you you have we call that metabolic syndrome. It's basically everything's going wrong with your body. Ooh, not not a good thing to have. <laughs> okay, no. uh, it puts you at very high risk for things like heart attack and even stroke and kidney failure. Uh, even just sudden death, you know, where like no warning sign, you just, you know, you grab your chest, fall over and that's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. End of story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if, even if something like that happened in a hospital, you still don't have a hundred percent chance of making it. I mean, you could, you could grab your chest in a hospital and still not make it. Right. Um, just with those risk factors and comorbidities, we call it. So who knows? I mean, it's impossible to say, maybe you would have made it another five, 10, 15 years. Uh, I, doubt you would have made it into your 50s mm. maybe you would have made it into your 40s depending on you know how often you went to the doctor uh how compliant you were with medications uh, you know it's hard to say you don't you don't see too many old people uh who have weighed 400 pounds for most of their life you know yeah uh that that is definitely kind of a an understatement right. um and i agree with you i mean my fear was i didn't even think i was going to be able to reach 30 remember i was still putting weight on yeah. at such a clip Um, that I didn't think that, well, matter of fact, I can say this also is, is a pretty much fact that within another year or so, I would have become too big for the big and tall catalogs that I was having to shop in already. Wow. Um, because I think that they only made up to like a 70 or 72 inch waist and I was already at a 66. Man. So then what? You just you make your own clothes like well, what are you that, supposed to that, do <laughs> that's that's the million dollar question i don't know uh, i think at that point you honestly become housebound uh, you know God. and, so and you were, then what you were toeing the line there i was man uh, you know i haven't talked about this either this is probably tmi but uh literally at 420 pounds i was right there where i could no longer like wipe myself in the bathroom oh my goodness like i had to order a a wand wow um, after surgery because i just i couldn't stretch down there to get it without really hurting my core and honestly i i was at a point where i needed it anyway just wow. because like i physically my girth was so much that i couldn't get yeah. my, my little short arm man you don't hear people talk about that too much <sighs> my whole goal here dr newport <laughs> is just to be open and honest because i yeah. honestly think that there are other people out there who are struggling the yeah. same way that i was and so the more open and honest and, and as much candor as i can bring to this conversation that's that's what yeah. i want to do it, it's tough and you know it's not a it's not a personality thing it's not like you're a bad person i mean this no. is like a medical condition you're dealing with yeah so um, you know I, people catch a lot of you know off color remarks from other folks and things like that it's really not fair you know i mean it, it's not like you people like to say oh you did it to yourself right, right. you ate too much and you did right. it. but like we i think like we we're alluding to already this is not something that you just do to yourself uh you know it's like going out and getting a tattoo or something like that it's right. like you know this is a medical condition this yeah. is these are imbalances in hormones and things like that and and certainly uh for lack of a better word imbalances and ways of thinking you know and dealing with food and dealing with stress and anxiety uh that, that leads to these issues yeah uh, i i i knew i was out of control man yeah. like uh i i could not stop myself i literally could not stop myself yeah and that's that's just a scary situation man it it really really is you know and and we've talked about all the other things that that come with it, you know, the, the walks of shame on the airplane sure. when you can't fit in the seat and eating the seatbelt extender, not being able to have a girlfriend or having a girlfriend who then wouldn't 
admit that we were dating, wouldn't tell her parents or her friends or anything like that, begged me not to tell our colleagues. Oh, you know, it was, it was like... That's yeah, terrible. Dude, it's no way to live. Right. And being uh, 20-something years old and dealing with that, I yeah. mean, that's like prime of your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, I've kind of recently come to the conclusions that, uh, to the conclusion that here I am in my mid-30s and I feel like I haven't necessarily chipped myself out of my 20s because I feel like I kind of have them now. Like, I feel really good, Yeah, you know? And yeah, so, you're you're almost like bounce back, like rubber band snapping in the other direction, you Rubber know? band man. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, not not quite as wild as I may have been as you're a, as a thinner man guy. in my 20s. <laughs> I am married after all. Um, but I want to ask you about the chest tightening because yeah. this is interesting to me. At 25, mm-hmm. I'm starting to experience this, and, and it would get – you know, more um, pronounced as as sure. time wore on. W- what was that exactly? I mean, was that because of, would you assume, because of blockage? It's, well, you know, that, that elephant sitting on your chest feeling that you describe is, is a classic sign of a heart attack. Oh, that's not good. So hopefully no one out there listening is experiencing it now. If you are, please call 911 or go to the nearest hospital. Yeah. Um, but you know, I always get concerned when somebody says they feel like an elephant sitting on their chest. I'll, if, if it's in the office, I'll get the EKG out right away. Um, you know, certainly want to examine them and see what's going on. Mm. You know, maybe even send them to the hospital. Um, but that's that's a really concerning sign. Um, that kind of pain or discomfort is often associated with your heart not being able to get enough oxygen. Right. Meaning it's not getting enough blood flow. Right. Um, and one of the reasons for that could be, you know, it's a supply and demand problem. Either the demand is too high or there's not enough supply. So when you uh, think of it this way, when you have a lot of body to supply, your heart's not designed to supply 400, you know, 420, 400 plus pounds of body with oxygen. Right. Um, you know, it's it's like having a, a building where you're, you got one little water pump trying to supply water to a skyscraper. Like it doesn't, just doesn't work well enough. Right. Um, it's the best analogy I can come up with at the moment. Uh, but, you know, you, you're trying to get that oxygen to your heart to try to keep your, your heart going, which is obviously important. Uh, and when you can't, that's your body's way of telling you, of letting you know, hey, there's a there's a problem here. You need to slow down. Yeah. It's, a, it's a self-limiting behavior. It's meant so you can't push yourself too hard to the point of dying. Right. <laughs> or you shouldn't at least it was a it was a heck of a warning sign but even even when that started like you would think that that would be enough to wake up most folks but i think that well again i can only speak for myself but yeah it wasn't enough up front man like i kept going yeah you know because i, I didn't have the surgery yeah. until I mean, my that, 27th birthday that that's addiction you yeah, know man. you're 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 summing it up you know it's people that that drink themselves to death uh they do experiments with rats and they give rats you know cocaine and stuff like that and they'll keep pushing that little lever to get more and more cocaine and, until they die like they, they won't eat they won't do anything else just keep getting the cocaine you know so i'm not saying it's the same as cocaine no. uh, but the point is that it's well, a, it's it's addictive it, it, it's close that's horrible though that they would do that the rats yeah, I mean, that's yeah, terrible yeah, probably shouldn't be studying that but <laughs> yeah man i mean i couldn't stop going back like i i literally could not and and the conversations also that i've had with dr uh barnard on this show um, you know, talk about how the brain reacts. Like we, mm-hmm. we touched on it a little bit as well, you yeah. know, and and the fact that there's an opiate found in cheese, you know, case of morphine. You right. know, it's not quite as strong as the heroin that yeah. you would find on the street corner from Pookie, but <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it is present and it does make it, you know, more difficult to quit that. Yeah. You know, and of course, if you're only 
eating more and more and more of these high fat, uh, high salt, high sugar foods, like of course your addiction is going to grow yeah. over time. Yeah, and our, our brains, you know, we we develop routines. You know, so think of something that you can do without even thinking about it, right? Like brushing your teeth. Yeah, you, you don't even have to think about yeah. it because you've done it so many times. Yeah, um, or or I don't know anything else. Like people that drive, and you can have a whole conversation and not even pay attention to what you're doing because you're so used to driving, right? So right. basically any kind of activity that you do over and over and over again, your brain develops this uh, ingrained pattern where it's like a second nature activity. So when food uh, or the addictive foods fall into that category, you can just eat and eat and you're not even really thinking about it. That's so, that mindless eating that people talk about. So I know that we're we're a little bit limited here on time, but I, I've been asking you about those high fat foods and, and mm-hmm. food addiction as well, because one of the things that Dr. Kaliova and I were talking about earlier in the show were the sources of fat. Yeah. You know, it's she looked at both quantity and quality right. of fat, and that's kind of um, a a distinction that I hadn't really thought of too yeah. terribly much yeah. uh, until she came on the show. Uh, she said basically, obviously, all fat in moderation. But she did say that, you know, it's better that you get that source of fat from, say, an avocado versus a bag of potato chips or French fries or right, something like right. that. Right, Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But, you know, my, my issue with fat, here's the thing. You, nobody has, nobody has a, a, a lack of fat in the diet, right? Have you ever met anybody who went to the doctor and they were told, you're not getting enough fat in your diet? No, no right? Not a licensed doctor anyway. Right. I mean, unless you're starving. Um, you know, the only times people get malnourished in the United States, um, the, the, the vast majority of cases are things like cancer when people are dying or AIDS, which, you know, fortunately we don't really see anymore, uh, or cases of anorexia where people are, you know, have a mental disorder and they're not eating anything. Mm. The only way to get malnourishment really on the, on the big scale is by not eating anything. And mm. I'm not talking about like iron deficiency, like micronutrient kind of things. I'm talking about like literally you look at somebody and you say that person looks like a skeleton. They're not S- eating enough. Straight up emaciated. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's a problem, clearly, right? Yes. Those are people who are not getting enough fat. They're not getting enough protein. Uh, for the rest of us that, that are, you know, we have our health, we're fortunate, uh, and we, we have access to food, you don't get deficiencies of fat, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. I tell my patients, like, don't even worry about it. Don't, don't worry about getting enough of it. I, you're going to get enough fat. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not... I don't like to think of it in terms of good fat and bad fat. I think of it in terms of essential and non-essential fat. Okay. Um, our bodies can make fat, clearly, right? People get bigger and bigger. Uh, We can turn carbohydrates into fat. We can turn protein into fat. Um, There's some fats that we need for certain activities in our body that are essential in our diet in very microscopic amounts. And we can get those just through consuming normal amounts of food. Um, So my, my take is don't don't worry about getting enough fat. Worry about getting enough fiber, enough fruits, enough vegetables, things like that. Mm-hmm. But don't worry about where am I going to get my fat from. Mm-hmm. Just just ignore it. Don't even worry about it. And the same goes for protein. I know we're not talking about that stuff today, but <laughs> I mean, I can count on zero fingers the number of times I've diagnosed somebody with not getting enough protein in the office here. Right, right. It's basically impossible from what I understand. Right. It, as yeah. long as you're eating. Yeah. You know, as long as you're not dying of some terrible disease or, or you know, not eating because of a, a mental disorder, um, you're going to get enough protein and fat. Let's put a cap on this discussion. All right. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, given all of that, what are your thoughts on diets like keto and Atkins? Well, you know, it's like, what, what are you trying to do with it? You know, like, why... Why are you following it in the first place? Um, I, it, clearly, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm partial towards the plant-based diet. Of course. 
I, I'm partial towards evidence-based diets. I mean, that's where there's the evidence. If you say I want to prevent and reverse heart disease, there's there's no evidence that keto diet does that. There's no evidence that you know the Atkins diet does it. You're eating a high-fat diet. You're eating a diet with a lot of cholesterol in it. Um, you're creating inflammation in your body versus you're following a plant-based diet and you're lowering inflammation. You have zero cholesterol. I mean, there's 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 no competition there. Right. There's right. no comparison. Right. Steer clear, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't... I don't know why anybody would do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thing here. Um, do you have any questions for me about food addiction? Because this is something you just said that you don't get a chance to or, – or you didn't get a chance to study at all yeah. in school. And so I think as a physician, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer. Oh, man. I have so many questions. We're going to have to do a part two a and part three two? and four. All right. Well, let's, let me, let's do a teaser then. Well, let me tell you this. Yeah. I'll tell you what. So in, in, in medical school, they often like to give us uh, – patients who are coached basically so they're coming in complaining of some issue like chest pain or something like that but they're they're coached by the, the other doctors by the teachers as mm -hmm. to like what to say mm -hmm. when we say what does your chest pain feel like how long has it been going on for what medical problems do you have stuff like that we don't really do that uh, at least when i was in school we didn't really do that much with patients who were obese you know and it, and it's it's a it's not something where somebody can be coached. Like you couldn't sit me down and have me be an obese patient no i haven't lived it i don't know what it's like you know somebody like you at least in the past, you know, you can describe what it's like to have to deal with social issues, emotional issues, uh, you know, addictive issues, things like that. Um, and so I think it'd be great for medical students to sit down with people and, you know, people who are willing to, to open up and, and really talk about it with students uh, and kind of give them a feel for what it's what it's like. I think that is a grand idea, sir. Yeah, I think that is a very <laughs> grand idea. Yeah, why not go the authentic route? Yeah. Actors are great. There you go. You know, and I am a member of SAG AFTRA, but oh, that's right. But yeah, yeah. at the same time, there's no no uh, substitute for authenticity. Yes, sir. Real deal. But I would, you know, I would love to to go through and talk to you quite a bit about it. By hey, look, man, you know you have a standing invitation <laughs> anytime you want to come on the show. All right, you're my guy. Oh, thank you, sir. You're my guy. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. All right. Doctor Steve Niebuhr from upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. Appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. And now we're going to turn our attention to gut bacteria. In the past, we've learned that our gut has a hotline to our brain that can trigger our cravings for all of those cakes and burgers and chips and chocolate and fast food, whatever your vice. And today, we're going to take a deeper dive into that link as I speak with Dr. Lee Frame, who has studied more about gut bacteria than most could ever hope to. She's going to be presenting at this year's International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, and her topic, gut bacteria where we are and where we're going. And the future of these studies is really, it's just revolutionary. Our understanding has increased dramatically as DNA science has advanced. Yes, yes, there is a link between DNA and gut microbiome. And you're about to find out what it is. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Joining me now via Skype, she is the Program Director for Integrative Medicine at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences. That's a mouthful. And with that, we welcome Dr. Lee Frame to the show. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad that you're here today, and I'm also really glad that you're going to be joining us at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine uh, right by you in Washington, D.C. there on July 26th and 27th. You're going to be talking about gut microbiome. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, I'm very much looking forward to talking about it, just kind of giving an overview of what we know and probably a lot of what we don't know as well. This is exciting to me. I I will tell you that uh, the previous show that we've done on gut microbiome is among our most downloaded ever. So there is a lot of interest in that among listeners. I would imagine that the same is holding true in the research community. A lot of people are looking at this, right? That is true. The The area of uh, microbiome is very hot right now. People who were working in fields that maybe we would necessarily think were not related, such as, say, nutrition, like myself, um, are expanding out into the microbiome because we're starting to realize that's kind of the missing link. Mm. We understand genetics. We understand a lot of the um, biomolecular mechanisms behind disease and health. Uh, but that missing part it, it seems like it might be the microbiome. Now, I was looking at some of the material that you sent over. Very fascinating. You you guys really dove into a whole bunch of research over there. Um, and the thing that I kind of picked up on immediately was the role that DNA sequencing and the advances in that have really furthered our understanding of microbiome. Absolutely. Uh, Everyone knows now because of 23andMe that getting your DNA sequence is a lot cheaper than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more than important for humans. It's also important for our microbiome because that's our primary tool for identifying who is there in the microbiome. Um, as you can imagine, getting a sample directly from your intestines, say, is not very easy to do. Um, so we use stool as sort of a an indirect measure of that. And by using genetics, we're measuring all bacteria that's present. So they don't have to be alive, um, as a culturing technique would require. Um, also, a lot of the bacteria in your gut, we can't culture in traditional ways because they're what's called anaerobes, meaning they, they can't stand oxygen. So once they get out in the world, they die, but they would have been alive and functioning in your gut. Interesting. Interesting. And, and, Correct me if I'm wrong. Also, another interesting piece of the research that I I keyed on was that microbiome is very much like DNA in that no two people have the exact same profile. Is that right? That was very astute of you. Yes. um, Actually, one of the real issues with studying the microbiome is that we're trying to make these broad generalizations, uh, but every person is unique. Um, and I would say this is a, a good argument for integrative medicine, which is my background, and that you need to treat each individual as a person. They are individual and unique in many ways, their genetics, their microbiome, their lifestyle. So that all falls up into something that makes it really difficult to study research-wise. Right. So I, I would imagine that it would be really difficult with everything being so different for everyone to really define what is healthy gut bacteria. Absolutely. And there is no definition of what a healthy microbiome is right now. I was actually at a conference at ILSI a couple of months ago where they brought together some microbiome researchers, nutrition researchers to try and define exactly what is a microbiome that is, quote unquote, healthy. And none of us could agree. Um, so we have, we have a few things that we can agree on, for instance, diversity. So the more different kinds of bacteria you have, that's definitely a healthier uh, gut microbiome. But other than that, it gets really kind of dicey. And part of that is because uh, what we're looking at right now in terms of genetics is a very high level. 
Um, so rather than looking at individual types of bacteria, individual strains, we're looking at their families. Mm-hmm. So we're, we just don't have the, the resolution or the clarity to really dig down and find those differences yet. I picked up on something. You said uh, a wide variety of gut bacteria. Would then you suggest eating a wide variety of foods? If certain foods create different kinds of bacteria, is it important then that we eat really a well-balanced diet? Absolutely. That is exactly the answer. Um, And one of the few things that really ties all the research together is you see uh, the wider variety of diet, the higher the diversity, and thus the healthier person. And one of the really interesting studies that has come out recently is um, from the American Gut Project. They're a really interesting group. They're actually um, sort of citizen scientists. They're, uh, They're run by Rob Knight, who is one of the big leaders in the microbiome area. But they're asking individuals to send in their samples and pay them, have them analyzed, so they can pull all this information together and do research on it. So it's kind of a pro bono Um, charity like research project and what they found when they were looking at types of diet uh, was the only thing that really stood out in terms of the gut microbiome was the number of plants that you ate really yes so you they couldn't tell the difference between omnivores carnivores vegetarians it was only the number of plants that you ate because that's what the bacteria are eating interesting that, I mean, that's really, really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Is, is that because the, the microbiome physically looks different uh, from plants? I mean, how do, how did they come to that conclusion? Well, so this is really just observation. Uh, so this is the first step in research, and we can't really say for sure that it's, it's causation. But it, it, given that it's a dose response, you're seeing that, you know, if you only have three plants, you, you look very different than someone that has five, who looks different from someone who has nine. And if you're eating like 20 plants a week, then you're looking really healthy and a large diversity. So it's very promising, but we don't know for sure that it's directly related. But I, I could certainly say mechanistically, it makes sense. You're providing, for one, the fiber that the bacteria need as fuel. Um, and you're also exposing them to a lot of phytonutrients or phytochemicals, uh, things that are we're starting to learn. Like people know that red, red wine contains resveratrol. And there actually is some work on resveratrol and red wine in, in particular on the gut microbiome that shows that something about red wine may be particularly beneficial to the gut microbiome. And it's not just the grapes and it's not the alcohol, but it's having this all together in a food matrix. Interesting. That is very interesting. Um, What do we know in terms of gut bacteria and overall nutrient absorption? Does one profile of gut bacteria lend itself to greater absorption of micro and macronutrients? Yes, there are definitely types of people that have different types of bacteria. And the real classic one we talk about is that you have someone who is just naturally lean and you have someone who's suffered from obesity their entire life. So there's something unique about patients with obesity in their microbiome. But if uh, somebody were to, say, be morbidly obese and lose a dramatic amount of weight, I used to weigh 420 pounds, today I weigh 145 I would imagine then that that gut bacteria, that microbiome would change as that weight loss progressed, correct? Absolutely. Um, And that's one of the reasons I actually got into the microbiome is one of the theories behind how bariatric surgery works is that part of it is from changing the microbiome. Mm Mm-hmm. So if we could first change that microbiome, we've now given you a tool to make it easier for you to overcome what was a previously very high obesogenic environment for you. Um, 
there wasn't a lot you could do to make yourself thinner. And now we've made it easier for you to overcome that and get rid of that disease. And it's so, still nothing easy about it, believe me. Um, I I know, I know. But the, the, the role of microbiome is, it's so just enormous. And that's why I'm fascinated by your research, because really, we've talked previously on this show about how it, it kind of has a hot wire to your brain. And, you know, that's kind of where food cravings start. And when you are morbidly obese, you will never convince me personally, I'm not a doctor, but you will never convince me that if you see somebody that is 420 pounds, 600 pounds, whatever it is, that they're not a food addict. And a lot of that mm. begins in the gut microbiome, because you physically, mentally, every way possible, you crave those fatty foods. Absolutely. And there's been research showing that the microbiome can actually alter hunger hormones. So the gut produces hormones that actually directly translate into the brain through the vagal nerve. So there's a direct line of communication from the gut to the brain. It's called the vagal nerve. Mm. So they're speaking to each other all the time. And that's how your body knows to go out and search for food because you're hungry. And in patients with obesity that have this obesogenic microbiome, they are sending signals of hunger much more frequently from their gut. So it's, you are absolutely right. You are being told by your body that you are hungry and you are starving and you must eat. Yeah. But that may not be the case. Yeah. Satiety was, was a total myth uh, <laughs> when I was so <laughs> overweight. I mean, it just did not exist. I could go and go and go and go. Um, I, I want to ask you, uh, you know, a lot of people think that carbs are the devil. Now, we're not going to get into debating the keto diet or the Atkins or anything like that. But I bring that up because there is also a lot of focus in the nutrition world on carbohydrates. So I'm curious what the correlation is between them and gut microbiome. So I'm glad that you asked that, in part because the largest amount of research focuses on carbohydrates. The one thing we can say for certain is that fiber is crucial for a healthy microbiome. Mm-hmm. We can't say a lot in terms of being absolutely sure in terms of nutrition. That is the one thing that absolutely everyone will tell you. Fiber is key. If you do not get enough fiber in your diet, you will not have a healthy microbiome, no matter what else you do. What about FODMAPs? Uh, And Uh, I think that that's how you pronounce it, right? Yes, absolutely. Talk to me about them. FODMAPs are a specific type of carbohydrate, um, and they're typically found in really fibrous vegetables like um, allium, so garlic, onions, broccoli, asparagus, things that we would think are really good for us. Mm -hmm. And for the average person, they are really good for you because basically a FODMAPs are something that the microbiome loves to eat. So they get really excited when they get it, they eat it, and they produce all sorts of beneficial compounds such as short-chain fatty acids. However, in some individuals, when the FODMAPs reach their microbiome, they produce way too many short-chain fatty acids. They get overexcited, and in that process, they're also producing carbon dioxide uh, and methane and all these gases that make you feel really terrible. And you have uh, bloating, cramping, um, you may have diarrhea or constipation, and this is what we frequently term irritable bowel syndrome. So in these type of patients, a low FODMAP diet can relieve their symptoms. That that does not sound very uh, promising whatsoever. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so here's another one. So talk about gut bacteria. Obviously, the research has uh, been increased, but for as long as I can remember, on store shelves, we've seen supplements for pre and probiotics. What When people are, are taking them, what are they hoping to achieve? And in your research, have you found that supplementation has been successful? So that's a great question. First, I want to just point out that 
the supplement industry, while loosely regulated by the FDA, does not have a lot of oversight. So there's a large variation from product to product. So the first issue is, are you even getting a product that's of value? Does it even contain what you think it contains? But let's, let's assume that your product that you're buying contains what it says it contains. So you're now taking a prebiotic. So basically that's fiber. So mm. you're just feeding the gut microbiome you have already. And so if you aren't getting enough fiber in your diet, this is a great way to supplement that fiber. Um, the only potential downside to prebiotics is that it can cause gas, bloating, constipation. So you want to slowly increase the amount that you take. Gotcha. You want to just get your body used to it, get your gut microbiome used to it, and you'll have less of those. Now, when my wife and I first went to a plant-based diet about three years ago, uh, we really, that gut microbiome, man, that, that must have changed hardcore because we did experience that, that gas and that bloating for about two weeks, and then it seemed like one day a switch was flipped and it was magically gone. Is something common then yeah absolutely and that's just your your gut microbiome is not used to having all of this fiber and it's getting really excited um so oh it boy, should calm it. down <laughs> with time but this goes back to the patients with ibs in those patients it never calms down so that's what's unique about them mm. but for most people you like you said it'll take maybe two weeks you're going to get used to it and if you just slowly increase your fiber intake you may not even experience that at all. It seems like it, it does happen with some people and not for others. So, I mean, there's a mystery there as well. I, I don't know. Um, right. I, I want to ask you about some specific foods and the role that they play. Um, berries in particular. We hear a lot about the health benefits of berries. Haven't heard a whole lot about what they do as far as microbiome. Well, there isn't a lot of work out there on that yet. Um, there's a few studies that have looked at um I think it was lingonberries, and, and they did see a beneficial effect on the gut microbiome in terms of increased diversity and, and seeing some of the quote-unquote good bugs increasing their amount. Um, but that's a very small study, and the problem with studying something like, say, a berry is we don't know exactly what's doing it, right? Mm. There's so many different things in berries that are good for you, um, so it's difficult to figure out exactly what is mechanistically affecting that. That being said, we don't eat nutrients, we eat food, right? So it, it doesn't matter necessarily if it was the phytonutrients or if it was the healthy fats or if it was vitamin C, any of those things, maybe not. Well, I mean, curiosity, though. I mean, right. I, I, I love that. I, I cannot have questions go unanswered. It, <laughs> it absolutely just kills me. Um, as we talk, I'm drinking a nice cup of green tea. This is another thing that uh, I know that you've looked at. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Green tea has shown to be potentially very beneficial to the gut microbiome. Uh, yes. <laughs> Basically, green tea is just fantastic and we should all be drinking it. Um, I have green tea every morning, actually. Um, so I would personally recommend it. It's, it. There's a lot of promising research out there. But again, it, we're, we're limited by the fact that we don't fully understand the microbiome. We don't have great uh, resources of measuring it. And one of the things that I haven't mentioned is that when we're studying the microbiome and we're just looking at who's there, we may be missing out on a really important piece of information about what are they doing, hmm. right? So what metabolites are they producing that's good for your body or bad for your body? And the, the way research is moving is that while it's important to know who is there, it's more important to know what they're doing when they're there. So we're trying to move a little bit away from genomics and genetics and move to what's called metabolomics. So looking at the metabolism of these bugs, because you know if, if they're 
you know, we think we you have a high diversity, but they're not producing the metabolites that is typical of a patient with high diversity, then you may not be getting all the benefits. Right, and that's how you would crack the code of defining what is and is not healthy gut bacteria, right? That's the idea, yes. Fascinating. But that's uh, a much more complicated question. Oh, yeah, well, no question. And I, like you said, we're, we're not there yet. So uh, we'll, we'll have to have you on in a few years when we are. Um, oh, what about food additives? That's, a, that's another thing that got mentioned in your research that I wanted to ask you about. A lot of people are so concerned with eating clean. Is that really important in what you found in terms of gut bacteria? Well, unfortunately, we don't know a lot about this. Hmm. Uh, it's something that has been understudied, um, in part because gut microbiome research is young, and, and we're just starting to get there. Um, but I will tell you that there are a lot of clinicians who believe very strongly that one of the reasons we have so many patients with irritable bowel syndrome or um, irritable bowel disease, some of the, uh, the the more growing areas of gut concern is due to these food additives. Um, it's one of the few things that we can point to that's changed really dramatically in our diet. Um, you know, we can't say that genetics has changed. We can't say that the microbiome has changed maybe that much. So it, there's something that we're introducing to our bodies that's altering our gut. And it would make sense that it's working directly on the microbiome. And there is a little bit of research coming out on that, but it's really, that's an area that I would like to see a lot more research done. You know what I like about you is that you are open and honest about saying what we don't know. That's so important, you know, that, that we're just open and honest. I mean, there are so many questions that are still unanswered, which again, irks me, but <laughs> we're working to get those answers. And it's that's important right. that we, we be honest with ourselves about where we are. Absolutely. And I try to look at it as opportunity, right? This is where the next study is going to be done. It's part of the reason that I, I do the research that I do is to highlight what we don't know so that we can get out there and figure it out. Absolutely. And uh, who, who knows? I mean, in, in 10 years, I feel like in the last decade, we've just grown leaps over bounds our knowledge has about this. So, you know, by 2030, I mean, maybe we will have that definition for healthy versus bad gut bacteria, right? I hope so. I, I think the idea from the workshop that I was at is that we're going to reconvene in five years. So Ooh. we're being very optimistic. Half the time. I like that. I like <laughs> that. Um, before I let you go, I want to switch gears. I want to talk to you about the ICNM, the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. Phenomenal conference. I've had the privilege of being there uh, the last two years. And you always learn so much. I mean, talk about this think tank. It's just ridiculous how much knowledge fills this conference room. You're uh, helping out with the the poster sessions and abstracts and things of that nature. Talk to me about what it is that you're still looking for and how people can get involved. Yes. So uh, I was at this conference for the first time last year, and I agree with you. It, it is phenomenal, really focused on the science and, and where we're going in terms of nutrition. And we decided to um, help support that at GW. We wanted to add a poster session where anyone who's doing research can come and present their cutting edge research. So it doesn't even need to be published yet. Just come and, and show us what you're doing and where the field is going. It's a particularly good opportunity for students to get out and start to talk to people about their science. Uh, it's something you have to learn when you're in grad school is how do you talk about science. Mm. Um, it's, I think, actually one of the more important things that we need to learn because yeah. if you just do science and it goes in a book and no one ever looks at it, then you haven't really done much. If you get out there and tell people about your science and it changes the world, 
now you've really accomplished something. Absolutely. And, and not just talking about it. I would say that because the vast majority of people in this world aren't doctors, aren't clinicians, not only do you have to have that ability to speak to your colleagues, but you have to be able to speak to the wider lay audience as well. And, you know, you do a phenomenal job of, of not dropping these, you know, 20 letter words on us that nobody really knows the definition of unless they have PhD behind their name, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so that is, is also something that's that's really critically important. So I think that that's a great opportunity because it, it won't just be doctors and clinicians that are there, you know, it'll be yes. people who are very interested in that link between diet and disease. Right. And that's why it's such a great opportunity for students. And um, in order to support students, we actually are offering them a really large discount on the conference. If they have their abstract submitted and we accept it, we're giving them more than a 50% discount. So I really encourage students in particular to submit their abstracts, which are due April 17th. That's right. Coming up not too long from now. Uh, And that is a a substantial discount. I believe the rate is $349, way less than the cost of the average ticket. So that's a heck of a deal. That's right. And I hope that will encourage every student to see what research they have going and and try to put together an abstract. And we will review them and uh, hopefully we will be able to get as many students who apply in. So that's just a hint. If you're a student, you should apply. Couldn't couldn't agree more with you. Dr. Lee Frame, you are just a wealth of microbiome knowledge and I cannot thank you enough for being on the show with us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. That was a jam-packed, extra-large show, pardon the pun, talking about fat, talking about gut bacteria, all of them fascinating discussions. I hope that you enjoyed them. If you'd like to come see Dr. Frame's presentation, I'd encourage you to act fast and register now for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. We still have early bird prices available, so get in on that now. Telling you. If you don't act now, the event sure to sell out. Get your tickets over at PCRM.org. And you'll also want to head there, check out the podcast page where we've posted a link to Dr. Kaliova's study on the quality versus quantities of fat. Very interesting nuggets in there, more than we could possibly hope to get on our show. So for the full picture, check it out, PCRM.org slash podcast. And if there's anything that you'd ever like for us to talk about on the show, don't be shy. Speak up. Let your voice be heard. Tweet me at Chuck Carroll WLC or the show at PCRM. Or you can message me on Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's Carol with two R's and two L's. WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. Also on Instagram at Physicians Committee. You know, we are hearing from a lot of you who listen to the show. And thank you so much for your suggestions and for your questions. You guys are amazing. Please, please, please keep them coming because we do have 52 of these shows to do every single year. Plenty to talk about. Your ideas are more than welcome. And say... Friend, have you subscribed yet to the exam room podcast by the Physicians Committee? Hmm? Hmm? Have you? Have you? It's available wherever podcasts are hosted. Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher. New shows, new information, new inspiration is available each and every week. Just go ahead and subscribe. And please, when you do, leave a five-star rating and a nice comment if you would be so kind. And also, if you found the show interesting, if you found the show enlightening, If you think that there's somebody that could benefit 
from hearing what it is that we talked about on the show today. Maybe they could use a little inspiration. Go ahead and share it with them as well. That is what the show is all about. My thanks to Drs. Kaliova, Niebuhr, and Frame for their time on the show. What a show it really was. I mean, man, oh man, it really was a full show. But for now, we must go. So for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.